Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is February the 14th, 2022. Um, we're talking about the long term today, the very long term, perhaps. Uh, in my Substack newsletter last week, I, I, I gave five reasons why we might be fucked, rather depressing. And um, the third and fourth reason had to do both with the problems with large tech companies in Silicon Valley and the problem of unaccountable private companies. Uh, we've had, as some, some of you will remember, Jacob Ward, CBS tech correspondent on the show. He has a new book out about artificial intelligence, the way it might destroy humanity. We've heard that one before. But I also have the great Anglo-Indian historian William Dalrymple on the show recently as a book entitled uh, The Anarchy about the unaccountability of the East India Company and the way in which it looted India. Um, meanwhile, um, Last weekend, I had uh, the British-based uh, public intellectual Roman Krisnarich on the show. He's written a book about how we should become good ancestors. Krisnarich is really focused on the long term. And in, um, in my conversation with him, it was a wonderfully far-ranging conversation. For those of you who haven't checked it out, you definitely should. We talked... Uh, about the Long Now Foundation, a San Francisco-based foundation, very much uh, focusing on the long term. Chris Norwich is a fan of the Long Now Foundation and a friend of Stuart Brand. Um, next month, uh, my old friend John Markov, New York Times correspondent, has a new biography of Brand out. Brand is a remarkable character, brilliant, uh, iconic, also in some ways very eccentric and controversial. And he had a very popular TED speech a few years ago called The Dawn of De-Extinction. Are you ready? Um, in the long term, Bram believes that we can become uh, masters, not just of the universe, but masters of the ability to rewrite life in the age of synthetic biology. So I'm thrilled that... Um, Someone else has been thinking about our quest to rewrite life in the age of synthetic biology. My guest today, uh, Amy Webb, um, she and Andrew Hessel have co-authored a new book out called The Genesis Machine, which is indeed about synthetic biology and its ability to rewrite life. Uh, and Amy is joining me today. Um, Amy, why do you call it The Genesis Machine? What does that mean? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so there's a, a sort of contingent of people who are currently working on really gnarly questions about where life will come from in the future and, and what uh, influence we might have over, over that. So the Genesis machine you can think of as a sort of complex apparatus of the scientists, research labs, computer systems, government agencies, and the businesses that are all working together now to redesign uh, and even create new life forms. And it's this genesis machine that is going to power humanity's great transformation. 
Is your book a warning? Is it a, a narrative? Is it a history? I know that uh, my old friend um, Walter Isaacson uh, had a best, all his books are, of course, bestsellers. Uh, a book out last year called The Code Breaker, which is about a UC Berkeley uh, biologist, Jennifer Doudner, gene editing and the future of the human race. What are you saying that people haven't said in your new book? Sure. So, well, Jennifer, of course, um, along with her uh, her partner, earned a Nobel for their research into CRISPR, which is a way of editing genes. Um, and CRISPR, you could put under this broader umbrella of synthetic biology. So much like artificial intelligence, which was the subject of my last book three years ago, is kind of a, a umbrella term that packs in many different technologies and systems. Um, and in fact, since it was coined in 1956, even the people who, who first used that term uh, quickly said that it, it was kind of meaningless. Um, synthetic biology is similarly sort of an umbrella term. And it represents the design, the engineer, tech, engineering technologies, all of the different systems uh, and tools that are created to help us gain sort of right level access to life. So it's, it's, it gives us incredible powers. Um, now, now you asked me, is this a risk? Is this a warning? You know, what is this? Ultimately, I think this book is, um, it's, a, it's, it's a book about humanity. Um, it covers a new technology that's going to allow us to edit, redesign, and create new forms of life, which will ultimately give us options to deal with some existential threats that are on the horizon, like climate change and novel pathogens. Um, it'll also be used to help us improve our you know, global food supply, water supply, ex extend our, our lifespans. But this is not technology without risk. And so the reason that we chose to, to work on the book now um, is because we're at the beginning of this evolution. And we have to get comfortable having conversations in a meaningful way that don't immediately become polarized. Because this is the technology that's, that we're going um, to need to ensure our survival uh, on this planet and off of this planet. Is this the long term? No, I mean, that's rather vague. Uh, I mean, everything everything will determine our future on the planet. We have people coming on this show every week saying the same thing about uh, mm -hmm. the environment, about artificial intelligence, about capitalism. Why should we believe this? It seems very speculative and distant. Sure. Well, it's not at all speculative. The, the very first uh, edited organisms are out there. There are tomatoes that have been created using this technology. Um, and already there have been life forms that have been booted up whose parents were technically computers. Um, so the apparatus is here and, you know, this is not, you know, there's no singular silver bullet that's going to save us from ourselves, but this is one of the core technologies that, that really will reshape what the future looks like. And I'm saying this having written a best-selling book about artificial intelligence. Um, so, so, and, and in fact, I started researching this book while I was working on the last one, because there are a lot of people who are in the AI community who similarly got very interested in what it might be like if we used computers to, you know, think about organisms in a different way. Um, and in fact, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned your, uh, your work in AI. Um, 
one of the people who comes up in your book is Marvin Minsky, who mm-hmm. is one of the pioneers of artificial intelligence. Is synthetic biology and artificial intelligence, are they sister disciplines? Are they entangled? Are they connected? Yeah, so I would say yes, in as much as AI plays a role in pattern recognition and some of the automated processes that happen um, and, uh, you know, helping uh, solve challenges that humans have not been able to to solve on their own. Um, And that's today. Further down the line, um, you know, it it will depend on how much more closely we want to intertwine the two disciplines. Um, But I think that there is some definite possibility. One can imagine a future in which uh, insulin, for example, is created from skin cells, and this is some research that's already underway, which would mean that our bodies become pharmacies and we don't have to rely on purchasing synthetic insulin, which for people who suffer from diabetes know is incredibly expensive and sometimes out of reach for the average person. Um, and, and, you know, AI helps aid the speed of scientific discovery. So these are two disciplines that are very much uh, working in conjunction um, to accelerate the, the path of each. Amy, you call yourself a humanist. Um, I'm never quite sure what that means. Are you in the tradition, for example? I know you mentioned Aldous Huxley in the book. His work, Brave New World, is often cited in, in many of these futurist warnings about the impact of technology on humanity. How do you define, when, when you say I'm a humanist, what exactly does that mean? Well, professionally, I'm a quantitative futurist. <laughs> so my, my job is to, um, is to use data to build models that surface emerging signals and trends, in my case, longitudinal trends in the present. But what does that then, mean? How does that make you a humanist? That sounds rather... Um, I'm not sure where the, uh, I, I guess I, I'm not sure where the humanist comes in. I would say that I'm, I'm pro people. I'm pro humans. Um, professionally, like I said, I'm, I'm a, I build models. I run a company that, that builds quantitative models and does scenario planning for other companies and government agencies. Um, in terms of the, the human element, you know, I'm a, I'm a firm believer in putting humans at the center of every technological advancement and really thinking through our place relative to the technology as it evolves. So, you know, that, that's what I was, I'm not sure where the, the humanist, I'm not sure that I have. What, what should we, uh, Amy, what are the things we, we need to be most worried about? In Brave New World, the, the warning, uh, Huxley's warning was a, a rampant utilitarian philosophy, which essentially did away with culture and creativity. What are you most fearful about? in your Genesis machine when it comes to the impact of synthetic biology on the world? Sure. So in the book, we outline nine risks, and those range from, I think, the somewhat obvious, and that has to do with um, DNA security breaches, to uh, some risks that are really important and perhaps less obvious, and that has to do with misinformation. Um, On the, the risk side, you know, Part, part of the challenge that we're going to face going forward is something called dual use. And to be fair, dual use comes into play anytime we're talking about any emerging um, any emerging technology. But in this case, uh, in the early an example we give in the book is that in the early 1900s, um, Fritz Haber was 
uh, inventing a way to mass produce, sorry, I've got an itch on my leg here, um, invented a, a way to mass produce ammonia. And that revelized agriculture. It led to uh, the commercial production of modern fertilizer, and it, it won him a Nobel Prize in 1918. However, that exact same research is what was used to create the chemicals used by Germany in World War I. And this is just my way of saying, anytime there's a new biology, a new chemistry, a new technology that gets invented, um, you know, sometimes what's intended for good can intentionally or accidentally be used for harm. And we've seen that already in the field of synthetic biology. In 2002 at SUNY, which is the um, State uh, University of New York, Stony Brook, um, there, there were some researchers that were funded through DARPA um, and trying to figure out if they could synthesize a live virus from scratch using only what was publicly available to them. So publicly available genetic sequences and information, off-the-shelf chemicals, mail-order DNA, um, things like that. And they succeeded. They were able to piece together short strands of DNA. Uh, it took a long time, but they were able to make the polio virus. So, uh, you know, it is terrifying what can be done. And to be fair, these researchers weren't trying to create something to deploy. They were doing this as a warning um, and and showing how easily terrorists could do the same thing. And one of the warnings was, you know, what if out there somebody is trying to weaponize a dangerous pathogen like an Ebola or a smallpox? And um, at the time, this was uh, completely irresponsible, but also not technically illegal. Can, um, we trust, um, can we trust private companies? We, I, I began the show with reference to the way in which many people, in, including um, Jacob Ward, uh, who I talked about at the beginning, don't trust the big tech companies with AI. Should we trust these um, incipient uh, uh, synthetic biology companies, Amy? Yeah, listen, I it's from my vantage point, and I've spent years researching this now, I don't think the companies are the problem. Um, this is early, early stages. And you know, I think the people who are working in this field see that there is extraordinary promise and they want it to succeed. So that's actually not the issue. Um, the issue comes into play when, you know, we have different regulatory frameworks, depending on where you are in the world. Sometimes they come into conflict. Um, in some countries, it's not entirely transparent um, how some of the research is ultimately being used. And I think this has more to do with country level plans and ideologies versus individual companies or researchers. Right. Um, so you, it have, that, uh, you, you, you have some references in your work to Zhang Yong, Zhen, the, the, the Chinese researcher is quite controversial there. You talk about Craig Ventnor. Wait, wait can, I, can we back up for just a moment? Because he's he's actually not controversial. It's because of him that we uh, that that we have a sequence. Um, he had been researching, uh, he, he, you know, it, it's because of him that there was a sequence for SARS-CoV-2 um, and that it it was published and right. it was published in basically like the Wikipedia version of, uh, of viral. No, no, um, I take your point. But uh, in, in terms of there's a lot of controversy about Chinese investment, Chinese government investment in this synthetic biology. 
I mean, which systems are you more comfortable with? The, a, a top-down authoritarianism in China where you have mm. a kind of enlightened despotism, hopefully enlightened, certainly despotic, versus the American model of anarchic capitalism where no, no government seems to be able to control companies like Facebook or Google or Amazon? Right. So again, I want to draw the distinction in China before I go on um, that that there are researchers who I think have great intentions and are are doing very important research, and they are not necessarily representative of what the Chinese government um, has in store. But with that being said, listen, uh, Xi Jinping has has publicly stated that biotechnology, synthetic biology in particular, are part of its strategic roadmap. And that makes sense. Uh, China has a lot of people to feed, um, and it's it's going to need to grow different parts of its economy to stay competitive um, and to fulfill some of the the wishes of the CCP. So, um, you know, what would it take for that to happen at scale? You need a ton of money at the uh, at the highest levels of government, and you need some speed. You also need a lot of data. So, one of the concerns that I have um, is that the the administration there has been actively collecting um, genetic samples from the Uyghur population, right. uh, not with their consent most of Very the time. Very chilling. We've done a number of shows on right. the Uyghur um, problem. I mean, I know it was a problem, the, the crisis, the injustice made in China, for example. So coming back to my, my question, right. are so, you suggesting so that you, you, you don't trust the Chinese government uh, and that you would prefer to have a, a, a decentralized, distributed capitalist system as in America when it comes to synthetic biology? No, I mean, I think there's something in the middle. And that's one of what one of the, the, the things that we are proposing in the book. So the authoritarian top-down model doesn't work, although it certainly makes it easier to collect DNA at scale. And you need that big data set in order to derive from it uh, new insights um, and therapeutics and things like that. Uh, but obviously, you know, China's building a, a national DNA registry and, um, you know, uh, that in addition to some of the other tactics it's using to surveil its population are, are obviously very concerning. In the United States, we have a, you know, uh, private sector approach on this. Um, the United States is drastically underfunded at a federal level in basic research uh, when it comes to science and technology and science in particular. We do not have an adequate uh, leadership pipeline. We've got a couple of key government departments where we don't have uh, important people in place. And this is a, you know, biology is a very heated political topic in the US, which is not a problem that China suffers from. So one of the challenges for us in the US going forward is the use of stem cells. Um, and collecting genetic data in order to do everything from better genetic selection to making synthetic chicken wings, you know, for the, for one of the Super Bowls coming up. Um, and so we, we've kind of had a, a science leadership vacuum. We have no national policy. We have no long-term strategic plan, certainly not one that can withstand the revolving so in other door words, you're, 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 you're very suspicious and critical of both the Chinese model, which you're fearful of, and the American model because it's inefficient and incompetent. What lies between the two? Are there examples? Uh, is there one in, I don't know, Canada, Australia, right. Denmark, Germany? Yeah, again, the, we, we don't have a, a functional model that 
yet anywhere in the world, because while in the United States, we've got um, regulatory confusion to some degree and the private sector funding a lot of this, which becomes a challenge when investors get itchy and want to see returns quickly. You know, the, the model in Europe is pretty heavy handed when it comes to regulation. And the problem is if you create rules in advance and you regulate the hell out of everything, you know, you're, you're North Korea. So that doesn't work either. Well, um, so we're going to have to figure out. I mean, that's, an, uh, that, that's a, a, a slightly exaggerated thing to say. Um, Anytime I'm not, you regulate, I'm not, you I'm not arguing. Right. I'm not saying that, uh, that uh, the European regulatory model is North Korea. I'm saying when you lead with regulation and um, the, the regulation doesn't allow for innovation, you, you also have a problem. But, so but we're gonna, when we come to this new technology, which, as you suggest quite rightly in the book, is perhaps the most revolutionary technology that humans have ever invented, which allows us to create and recreate right, uh, life, as you say, our, our quest to rewrite life. If government doesn't regulate this, then there's no purpose in government. I mean, there's no point in government if they're not even able to confront something which has such profound and potentially catastrophic ramifications for for our species when we can just simply rewrite life. Right. So again, I think it's how regulation happens. And we want regulation, but we also want it to be consistent. Um, in the United States, the, the coordinated framework, this is what regulates um, the, the products of synthetic biology, focuses on the end product versus the process itself. Um, and, you know, it's probably okay for right now, but at some point that's going to cause problems because, you know, again, I, I mentioned stem cells. Um, the Super Bowl has, has just happened. Americans ate 1.45 or so billion chicken wings, um, which is both damaging to the environment and inhumane to the chickens, you know, and... Um, you know, not 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 great in many ways. If we could instead have uh, stem cells, use bioreactors, and produce chicken that is molecularly identical, and in fact could be better because you could pull cells from heritage chickens that don't require antibiotics, that don't require, um, you know, other types of medications, then you wind up with a healthier you wind up with a healthier food product to put in your body, but that process has to go through a bunch of approvals. I mean, isn't um, there, aren't there more serious things to worry about than eating chicken wings at um Absolutely. So absolutely, I mean, you, you, you made a name for yourself um, with a very popular uh, TED talk about how you hacked online dating. We're talking, Amy, on Valentine's Day. What about the idea of having technology which allows us to write our own lovers, to define exactly who we want to spend the rest of our lives with? That's much more serious, substantial, and interesting than chicken wings, isn't it? Well, it might be more interesting, but I don't think it is uh, serious, nor is it substantial, and here's why. Um, uh, DNA-based matchmaking is somewhat uh, dubious for, for many different reasons, um, what are the types of markers? I mean, you could certainly do that and people do, um, before they get pregnant to make sure that there are no heritable markers for like Tay-Sachs disease. Um, but whether or not you are, there, there's a high probability that based on your unique genetic map that you're going to match with somebody else. I mean, there's no science that proves that out. Uh, okay, I take that point. So let's go back to Stuart Brown. We, we started with him. Stuart is brilliant, eccentric, controversial. Um, 
he did his famous TED speech uh, in 2013 about the dawn of de-extinction. Should people like Stuart be allowed to bring species back to life? Sure. Well, first of all, Stuart Brand is uh, is an incredible person and one of the progenitors of um, really long-term thinking in the modern era. And I recognize that what he is suggesting as a way to improve biodiversity uh, sort of butts against our current mental models. And I know that um, when we talk about rewilding or resurrecting species that have gone extinct, you know, we immediately pull from the science fiction that we've read. So Island of Dr. Moreau or, you know, pick any other any other um, book you've read or movie that you've seen. But the reality is that we do have a plummeting biodiversity problem. We do have technology that will very soon, and in fact, is already in progress on enabling us to rewild. And that's not just to create like cool zoos in the future. That's actually to, to solve some very challenging problems that we just haven't been able to solve in other ways. For example, the permafrost layer. Um, so George Church, who's a famous geneticist and an incre another really incredible, wonderful person, um, and and has had many, many, many projects. But one of them is trying to to resurrect the woolly mammoth. And again, this isn't like for kitsch or cool. It's uh, because the permafrost layer in the northern hemisphere is, you know, shrinking and and melting. And to some degree, that's because at some point there were these enormous beasts that used to roam around and would stomp down the ice and stomp down the permafrost layer. And it was what enabled the ecosystem to turn itself over. Well, with the absence of those enormous animals, it created this imbalance. Um, so again, I think this is one of these, and th th again, that's why partially why we wrote this book, because we're on the precipice now of some of these technologies. And I am old enough, Andrew, and I know you are as well, to, to um, remember Dolly the sheep in the 90s. Yeah, and, and, and yeah, and Dolly the sheep kind of, it was a big deal, or she was a big deal, deal and then she kind of went away. Well, well yeah, but, but I think it's worth noting what happened because I forget what the year was, 1990 or so, there was a, an, an announcement made that some scientists from Edinburgh had cloned successfully a sheep and brought it uh, uh, all the way through gestation to, to a live birth. And it was the first time that that had been done. And the purpose was not to create demon spawn. The purpose was to study um, how life regenerates for the purpose of you know, improving our own lives and potentially creating new therapeutics and things like that. But you but are beginning, and I mean, you you you're beginning to sound like some of the some of the government mouthpieces in Brave New World. This has to be beyond simply utilitarian arguments. There needs to be more to it than that, doesn't there? <laughs> uh, I think you are the first person ever to say that I sound like a government mouth mouthpiece. You know, here here's what I would say: we've lost our sense of awe and wonder. I think. Um, we are living through an extraordinary, we have just, I'm, I model scenarios for a living and mostly they're strategic so businesses can make, uh, decisions and investments, but you know, we're, we're living through a dystopian scenario, um, over the past couple of years because of COVID. And, and before that we were living through a dystopian scenario in politics. And before that we were living through, you know, we, we have gotten to the point where, um, we are so focused on what's right now that we are all nowists and the nowist mentality is a dangerous one because usually a few things happen one 
you know, people look to the generation that's coming up next. Millennials will solve the problem or Gen Z. I, I'm hopeful because of Gen Z and Gen Z are going to solve the problem. You know, that's a really, really awful thing to do because it absolves you from any responsibility in the present. So we're in a situation where we've just lived, you know, we're, we're living through a dystopian scenario and we, we, you know, we have to have something to look at um, that makes us fire to something better. I don't understand what you mean by a dystopian scenario, but let's end, Amy. Uh, we began with uh, Roman Krasnarich's uh, interesting work, his book on how to be a good ancestor. As you suggest, we're living through this revolutionary moment in terms of synthetic biology. We have a responsibility as Krasnarich, and I'm sure you would agree, to our ancestors. What? Give me a couple of things that we, you think, we should be doing in terms of synthetic biology to make ourselves good ancestors to future generations who are going to have to deal with the full ramifications of this technology. Sure. Well, the first is to be better misinformed, uh, is, <laughs> is to not be misinformed, to be better informed. One of the things we learned during the COVID crisis was that everybody forgot what they learned in high school biology class. Um, like it or not, we, we have entered a biological age uh, where we are tinkering with biology. And if you don't have the basic lexicon to understand what that means, then you are ill-prepared for what's on the horizon. So That's a good point. And certainly uh, one way to become more educated is to read Walter Isaacson's new book, um, The Codebreaker, and of course, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the Genesis Machine, um, uh, Amy's new book that she wrote with Andrew Hessel. So I think that's a good point. One other, Amy. Oh, one other point? Um, just missing. Be a good ancestor. You want to be a good ancestor, don't you? Do you have children? I, I do have a child. Of course, I want to be a good ancestor. Good, Here, like the, all of us. Yeah. So here's the other thing. Um, it is very. It is vitally important that before saying no, you lean in with curiosity, and it's going to be very difficult to do. Not just because not not just as you're reading the book that we wrote. But as you start to notice some of these changes in society, you are going to be confronting your cherished beliefs over and over again, which means that you will be susceptible and vulnerable to misinformation. It and that is goes extremely... beyond chicken wings, doesn't it? What, What's give that? Me an example of how, um, how, how that might happen. Well, we've just seen it happen with the messenger RNA and COVID vaccines and and this is this is a case where everybody quickly became polarized rather than meeting in the middle and having a reasonable conversation. And I know that sounds a little Pollyanna-ish. However, you know, if 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 the COVID misinformation problem caught your attention, imagine that at a scale, you know, orders of magnitude more, because there are many different things happening at once. We can't fall into a situation where we trust scientists, but we mistrust science. And that is where we are today. So if you want to be a good ancestor, obviously read the book that we wrote, but also think about as you're hearing information that challenges your core beliefs, you know, can you get to a place where you can at least understand um, and try to make sense? And rather than saying no or saying yes, right off the bat, say, let me think about it. Um, and, and, you know, try as hard as you can not to fall victim to the crazy insanity that is going to be swirling around some of this soon. I think that's a very good point. I think that synthetic biology, uh, the idea that we can rewrite life does get to our core beliefs and fears, whether we're religious or not. 
uh, Amy's new book, uh, The Genesis Machine, which she wrote with uh, Andrew Hessel, Our Quest to Rewrite Life in the Age of Synthetic Biology, is part of this new um, generation of books attempting to educate us about both the benefits and dangers of synthetic biology. Congratulations, Amy, on the book. Thank you. Keep doing your good work. Keep eating those chicken wings and we'll talk again in the